To truly engage with the world, you have to use a variety of stories. We're fundamentally storytellers. That's what human beings are. Now, there's the reductionist story that physicists are well equipped to talk about with particles and laws of physics. On top of that, you've got the chemist story, the complex molecules. You've got the biologist story that begins to talk about cells and life. You've got the psychological story, the neurophysiological story that brings in mind and consciousness. And within that, you then have all of the activities that conscious beings undertake, which includes religion and includes telling other kinds of stories and includes creative expression. You need them all. And to sort of say that the scientific account is the only account by which you're ever going to gain true qualities of the world is a very, in my view, limited description of what truth is. There is objective truth in the world that we can measure, that we can describe with equations of so forth. But there's also internal truth, spiritual truth that you get to by self-examination. It's real in the sense that you're understanding how you respond to the world. And that is something which is deeply personal but utterly real. And whether it's through psychedelics, whether it's through ayahuasca, whether it's through a spiritual journey, whether it's through religion, regardless, all of this adds color to the story of what it means to be a human being. What it means to be a human being. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone Welcome back to Infants on Thrones I'm Glenn Osland and this is episode 784 former Mormon musings on existential dread. And what you just heard in that introduction, if you don't already know, that was physicist Brian Green on an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast a few years ago. I've used that clip before. I really like it. I really like the way that it embraces subjective truth as part of the whole of all truths. And uh, I'm going to do something a little different today than I've done before. I don't know, maybe it's the same. Maybe, maybe it's always just the same, but um, I'll, I'll let myself introduce it in what I recorded last night for you. So, hang on. Hang on, on and your glasses, this here's ride in the wilderness. All right. I'm going to try something a little different today. Because I, yesterday, I went through the Infants on Thrones website, and I looked at every single episode, like of the 700, however many there are, 83, 80, what, this this is 784? And some of them are repeats, granted. But I wanted to see, I've been enjoying this Reflections series, you know, since January, going back and listening to these old episodes. I mean, <laughs> things that I haven't listened to in years. And it's just been fun. So I went through the website and I thought, how many Smackdowns did we ever do? Like, what, what are the Smackdowns? Like, if I was going to create a separate podcast feed just for the Smackdowns, which I think I'm going to do, by the way, how many, were, how many are there? What are they? And there's 43. 43 Smackdown episodes. Starting, um, yeah... Like, really, 2011 was probably the first SmackDown that I consider it a SmackDown, and then uh, to 2019. So, between that period of time, 
43 Smackdowns. And then I thought, well, what about the kind of classic Infants on Thrones panel discussion, parody, conference episodes, uh, singing, you know, like the Disney songs, things like that, that I'd consider to be like real classic Infants where we have the whole quorum together. Um, And there's 61 of those classic Infants. And then I thought, what about the Minisodes. Like, I loved the little minisodes that we did. What, what if I did a series called My Favorite Minisodes? So I didn't go through and pick out all of the minisodes, just the ones that I remembered that I really particularly liked, and there are 37 of those. So all in all, 141 episodes out of the 784 <laughs> that have been published that I think I'd really like to do something more on this reflection series. So it put me in this really reflective mood. But that's not what I'm going to do today. What I'm going to do today is go through one of the recent listener feedback surveys. So I created a mindfulness survey back in 2021, and I've had several people fill it out. Uh, It's kind of sporadic now, but it is on the website if any of you want to fill it out. But I've never really talked about it. Not much. I've never really gone through the whole thing. But I want to do that today because there's this guy... And I don't know if you want me to use your real name or not, so I'm not going to use your real name. But uh, the initials are EP, and uh, one of the questions I ask is, what's your age? And it gives a range. Uh, His his age is between 18 and 25, which I find particularly interesting because my children, my oldest daughter is 25, and then I've got a 21-year-old daughter, and I've got an 18-year-old son. So EP... You are right the same age as my kids. So I'm kind of thinking of this, you know, like I'm talking with my kids a little bit. You know, what's your relationship to the Mormon church, I ask. Ex-Mormon, post-Mormon. How long have you been listening to Infants on Thrones? And he said, on and off for five years, more at the beginning than now, which, you know, makes sense because uh, it was a very different thing (laughs) back then than it is now. And then I've got a list of a bunch of questions And I'm going to read through each one and kind of talk about each one of them and give EP's answers here. But I want to skip towards the bottom because I ask, you know, what do you think of the podcast? What topics would you like to hear more about? And he says, I listen for nostalgia mostly and seeing myself grow alongside the podcast host. I'd like to hear more about replacing religious existential dread for more real, quote unquote, existential dread about climate crisis and politics and economic unrest and what that means for the future of a young person. And so, you know, being the age of my kids and asking this question the way that you did, I just want to spend some time. And I found it interesting because, and and maybe this is just the way that I'm reading this EP, but what you're asking is, how do you relate, how do you replace one form of existential dread, religious existential dread, for the more real (laughs) existential dread about climate crisis, political unrest, economic unrest, and what it means for the future of a young person. So you're not asking me to um, help you deal (laughs) with that existential dread or remove the existential dread Uh, or reduce the existential dread. You just want me to replace the existential dread with, you know, what used to be religious existential dread for more uh, real existential dread. And, like, my response to that is, why do you want any kind of existential dread? Um, And maybe that's what you're asking for. Maybe, Maybe you're saying, I don't want to feel any kind of dread, whether it's existential or otherwise. Could you help me? I don't know if that's really your question or not, EP. You probably know who you are if you're listening to this for the sake of nostalgia, or maybe you're not listening to this one at all. I don't know. You know, actually, I'm going to email you so that you'll know that this is out there. So you're listening to this. I hope you're listening to this. And anything that you want to clarify at any point, feel free, write in. Maybe we can even have a conversation if you want to. Although when I asked you that on the survey, you said, no, thank you. I'll just listen. All right, EP, so just listen. So I see you as somebody who is experiencing existential dread and has been for a while and at one point it was in the form of the religion and now it's more real things like climate change economic uncertainty 
um, things that a someone in between 18 and 25, like my children, I get it. <laughs> I understand that kind of existential dread. And I wonder if there's a connection between the existential dread that you feel and the ways that you answered these different questions that are in the worldview survey, the mindfulness survey. So I'm going to go through this and um, I'm just going to comment. I'm going to say what I think, how I feel. It's not what I think things should be or how the world should be or anybody else should think and feel the way that I do. It's just, you know, what I'm thinking and feeling right now that I like to share for the sake of having a conversation. So if you'd like to get back to me, any of you, really, I'd love to hear from you. So the way that these questions work, I'll give you like a little sentence like, meditation is a healthy practice, which is the first one. And then I ask you to either strongly agree, mostly agree, be kind of ambivalent, slightly disagree, or strongly disagree, right? So it's a five-point scale. And EP said that he strongly agrees that meditation is a healthy practice. And I agree with that as well. I think it's a healthy practice because whatever form of meditation, and there's a lot of different forms of meditation, and if somebody's telling you that you're doing meditation the wrong way, I would say, tell them to <laughs> tell them where they can go. I mean, come on. If, if, you're, if you're making an attempt to focus on your breathing and focus and observe your thoughts and feelings, I think that's enough. I don't think you need to listen to a guided meditation for it to be the right way. You can, that'd be great. Or do walking meditation, or do like silent meditation, or contemplative prayer, or transcendental meditation, or any of the different types of meditation that are out there. I think any, any time where you're kind of taking a time out from the day, because our, our nervous systems are always on such high alert. I mean, how can they not be? I mean, especially these last two years being in a pandemic and everything that's going on. It's almost like you can't escape bad news. We're just constantly in this state of existential dread, right? So meditation, how does that help? Well, I think it helps to reset our central nervous system, to just calm down so that we're not uh, in this state of constant fight or flight where our body is sending these chemicals like cortisol and norepinephrine and adrenaline, which they're great to help you get out of a bind, but long-term exposure to this stuff, it just creates stress and wear and tear and sickness and all kinds of dis-ease within the body. So meditation is a way to take a break, take a time out, calm down, it's really good to do, especially in a moment where you feel yourself getting triggered. Just take some deep breaths and feel yourself. I love it when I breathe in and I breathe out and I can feel my body relaxing as I do it. So, yeah, I agree. I strongly agree that meditation is a healthy practice. And especially if you can develop that metacognitive skill with our prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain that allows you to be aware that you're aware that you're aware so that when you get triggered, whatever it's triggering you with this, creating this existential dread, you can watch it, you can see it, you can know what it is. And maybe if you create that metacognitive space, you give yourself a little bit of freedom from the thought and the feeling itself, a little bit of separation, a little bit of distance where you can make a choice about what you're going to do with this thought, what you're going to do with this feeling. So I think there are a lot of benefits to meditation. I mean, I'm not the only, buddy, the only one who says this. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about this. So that's the first question. And EP strongly agreed. Now, the second question or statement. Spirituality is a healthy way of looking at the world. Strongly agree? Mostly agree? Ambivalent? Slightly disagree? Strongly disagree? And EP put ambivalent. So right in the middle not for or against spirituality. And it probably has a lot to do with how you define spirituality. Like, what does spirituality mean to you? If you're thinking about spirituality from the perspective of the Mormon church, the way that we were always told to be spiritual, 
I can see how that would be a little triggering. And that might make you think, no, I disagree. Anything that the Mormon Church says is not going to be a healthy way of looking at the world. I mean, I can understand that point of view. I can understand why somebody would answer it that way. So it really begs the question, what is spirituality? And I'm not going to tell you there's a right or wrong answer to that either, but I'll tell you what it means to me. Uh, Spirituality is a way of having awe and marvel and wonder about the things in the world that we just can't explain. We don't know. I, I, I kind of stopped believing a while ago that there's a real distinction between physical and non-physical. I think that's a category that has been created by humans to try to understand the world and dissect things that we really don't understand. But I'm not sure that anybody could give me an example of something that isn't physical. Because even if you say, like, the words that I'm saying right now, that you're hearing, there is a physical component to this, or else you wouldn't be hearing what I'm saying right now. I wouldn't be able to speak into a microphone and have that broadcast through the internet, go into your ear, hit your eardrum, and have it be something that comes up with any kind of semblance of meaning to it. There is a physical component behind these words that I'm speaking. What about the ideas behind the words that I'm speaking? Well, those are neural pathways. They're cells that are sending synaptic, energetic flashes of stuff back and forth to each other. There is some kind of physicality there, even within the thought process, that I don't totally understand. Consciousness itself, is conscious a physical thing or a non-physical thing? Well, what does that even mean? I, I, there, I, I don't know of any non-physical things. So that's the way that I look at it. So I kind of look at spirituality as uh, like spirit is a label for something that's not physical. But that really means something that we just don't understand as being physical. That's the way I look at it, at least. So I think... I I think I strongly agree with this, that spirituality is a healthy way of looking at the world because I think it is more inclusive than exclusive. Um, And it's marveling and it's it's wonder and it's appreciate it's appreciating what I don't understand uh, instead of pretending like I do understand it, which I do a lot anyway. And it's a lot of fun. But trust me, I know I don't really understand the things that it sounds like I'm really confident about. (laughs) Okay. So the next question, religion has had an overall positive influence on the world. Ah, So now we've got not just spirituality, but religion. And uh, EP here couldn't stay in that ambivalent space. EP went down a notch, slightly disagree. Didn't strongly disagree, which I can appreciate, but slightly disagreed. And again, probably because you've just got that taste of Mormonism that you can't get out. And it just, you, you see the ways that uh, religion is used to justify um, really horrible things in, in the name of a religion. And so how could, how could you have anything positive that comes out of something like this? And again, you may not agree with me, but here's the way that I see it. I don't see religion as being anything really all that different from politics or any any kind of ideology where there is an intense dogmatic rigidity that people are holding these ideas to, to the point that they're so sacred that you can't challenge them, you can't question them. And so I don't see that as like religion as much as I see it as rigidity and attachment to ideas that are more important than being compassionate to other people. If I'm thinking about what religion is, I think of religion as being a system, like a container, that holds ideas, beliefs, stories, customs, rituals, all of these things. It's kind of like a cultural membrane that wraps people around it. And when I read the book Sapiens, and Yuval Harari explained the value of fictions as a way of bringing people together, like a a, a cultural membrane that surrounds people and gives a sense of unity, whereas otherwise you wouldn't have that. There are so many things in the world, so much progress that we've made because we've had 
those kinds of fictions wrapping around us like a membrane. And religion has been a huge one of those. So I, I think in the history of humankind, religion has had an overall positive influence on the world. Now, the negative influences are like some of the worst atrocities that we've ever had. And I, but I think in the over, overall, the way that I see it, the potential for positivity in this is great. And the problem with it is when, <laughs> when you start dehumanizing other people in the name of religion. That's how I see it, at least. So, it, any help with existential dread on there? I'm not sure if we've gotten to it yet. All right, here we go. Next one. There is some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe. EP strongly disagrees with this one. Because that smells like God, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like I'm asking you, do you believe that there's a God? Or I'm saying there is a God. And you say, I strongly disagree with that. No. Boy, I could, I could talk about this one for a long time. But I worded this very specifically. There's some kind of deep... And, I, and so think about this. What is, what is your DNA? What are your genes? I, I'm going to tell you that they're intelligence. It's not intelligence the way that you would think of somebody scoring a certain number on an IQ test, how smart somebody is, how good somebody is at memorizing information, regurgitating it, or how creative they are, or any of those kinds of things that we often associate with the idea of intelligence. But I, I'm talking about information. I'm talking about data. And there is something that happens within nature. And I'm not totally sure where it is or what it is, but it's the force behind evolution. It's the thing that tells the cells in my body, whether they should be a liver cell or a fingernail. It provides the blueprint for my thoughts, my feelings, the, the way, my personality, like all of these things that are right there in the genetics that we've still barely scratched the surface of what that is. So you think about your DNA that is deep within the nucleus of every cell in your body and it is intelligence and it's made out of energy. It's made out of atoms, subatomic energy that has evolved from long, I mean probably even longer than the formation of this planet when we had single-celled organisms. But just my DNA, your DNA, it could be traced back to single-celled organisms that lived on this planet 4.8 billion years ago or whatever it was. So when I'm saying that there is some kind of deep, energetic, highly evolved intelligence that forms everything in this universe, I'm saying that everything has something in it kind of like DNA. There's, there's some kind of evolved blueprint. I'm just guessing based on what I understand of science that flowers have their intelligence that tells that atomic energy. Okay, atoms arrange in this way. Okay, subatomic energy that forms each atom form this way. There's these principles and rules, this data that has been evolving over time. So I know it sounds like I'm asking about God, but I'm not really asking about God, at least not in any way that I had previously ever thought about God. And I wonder if that, if that question, if that way of looking at this would touch any of that existential dread. If, if there's a way of looking at the deep intelligence in nature and recognizing it is so, so much more ancient and, dare I say, wise <laughs> than humans which it creates along with everything else in life that I understand there's existential dread when you're thinking just from a human perspective that oh someday our species is going to die out yes because that's what all life does accept it sorry yeah there's existential dread someday I'm gonna die uh-huh yeah I might get sick it could be from COVID it could be from any number of things I could get 
hit by a car tomorrow. You know, there's any number of things that could happen. This is the world that we're living in. These are the conditions. Yes, I understand the, the dread, but I can accept it. And whatever I am, I, I am a result of this energy that was shaped and formed in the way that this DNA tells it to. And I don't know what happens to that energy. <laughs> When I die, it gets recycled. Anyway, I could go down a huge rabbit hole with this one. And I already have gone down a little medium rabbit hole with it. And maybe it was fun, and maybe it wasn't. But there you go. The next question, or the next statement on here. Everything I experience is experienced through my mind. And EP mostly agreed with that. And EP, if you were here, I would ask you to tell me... What do you experience that isn't through your mind? Like, what do you think? Like, what's keeping you from strongly agreeing with that? I, I think it's interesting that you weren't ambivalent with it. I think it's interesting that you didn't disagree with it at all. You mostly agreed with it, but you kind of left a little bit of wiggle room. There might be some things that you experience that aren't experienced through your mind. And again, maybe it's how do you define what a mind is? Like, what is a mind? What's your mind? Your mind is the action that your brain does. And in this process is one of the greatest remaining mysteries in science and philosophy. How does consciousness happen? Somehow, within each of our brains, the combined activity of many billions of neurons, each one a tiny biological machine, is generating a conscious experience. And not just any conscious experience, your conscious experience right here and right now. How does this happen? In the story I'm going to tell you, our conscious experiences of the world around us and of ourselves within it are kinds of controlled hallucinations that happen with, through, and because of our living bodies. Our own individual inner universe, our way of being conscious, is just one possible way of being conscious. And even human consciousness generally, it's just a tiny region in a vast space of possible consciousnesses. Our individual selves and worlds, are unique to each of us, but they're all grounded in biological mechanisms shared with many other living creatures. So our experiences of the world around us and ourselves within it, well, they're kinds of controlled hallucinations that have been shaped over millions of years of evolution to keep us alive in worlds full of danger and opportunity. We predict ourselves into existence. Now think about this for a minute. If if hallucination is a kind of uncontrolled perception, then perception right here and right now is also a kind of hallucination, but a controlled hallucination in which the brain's predictions are being reined in by sensory information from the world. In fact, we're all hallucinating all the time, including right now. It's just that when we agree about our hallucinations, we call that reality. Is there anything that you experience that isn't process through your brain, anything that you hear, anything that you see, anything that you touch. I mean, m maybe if, you, if you're touching something with your finger, you feel like you're touching it there and that's happening in your hand and it's not going through your brain. <laughs> but guess what? It is. Those sensations are coming up through your nervous system. It's processing it. It's giving you, you know, oh, it's hot. Oh, it's cold. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. It's solid. You know, it's all in the mind. It doesn't mean that there aren't things out in the world, but everything that you experience is experienced only through your mind, your thoughts, your feelings. And, I mean, shut off the mind and see what kind of experiences you have. Maybe that's what near-death experiences are. I don't know. Maybe that's still mind too. I don't know. Maybe it's all mind. <laughs> Who knows? All right, so everything I experience, I experience, uh, everything I experience is experienced through my mind. I strongly agree with that. The next one, I experience only a small fraction of reality, and EP was ambivalent on this. Well, uh, there's a YouTube video that I watched several years ago by David Eagleman, and I've used clips on it from time to time where he talks about the Umwelt 
and the umwelt is this narrow sliver of radiation that's visible to the human eye. And I think it was like less than a one hundredth of a percent of something. We are built out of very small stuff and we are embedded in a very large cosmos. And the fact is we're not seeing all the waves out there. In fact, what we see is less than a 10 trillion of what's out there. So you have radio waves and microwaves and x-rays and gamma rays passing through your body right now and you're completely unaware of it. And I think it was like less than a one hundredth of a percent of something, you know, like we don't see uh, microwaves or x-rays or ultraviolet light, you know, like the, in the whole spectrum of what could be visible, the human eye has only evolved to detect a small portion of it. And the same thing can be said for sound. And that's just one way of thinking about I experience only a small fraction of reality, you know, reality being everything that there is, everything that exists, reality. I only experience a small fraction of that reality, and that's just within the small sphere of perception <laughs> that I live in. Like, I can see, how far can I see? How far can I hear? What are the limits of what I experience in the state that I live in, in the town that I live in, in my neighborhood? Uh, let alone in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the universe, if there are multiverses, if, if all of that goes on for infinity. You know, I, I experience only a small fraction of reality. Uh, when you understand what that means, I don't know how you could say anything except strongly agree with that. So maybe again, it's just a, a, a question of what you think those words mean when you read them, um, which is going to be determined by your background, your experience. And um, so whatever you think it means, based on your experience, what you know is fine. I'm not going to say you're wrong. But I'm saying this is why I strongly agree with this, because this is how I understand these words. All right, next one. My thoughts create my perception of reality. And uh, EP strongly agreed with this one, as do I. So we, we both strongly agree with this. Because the way that you perceive reality, it, it also it's filtered through the mind. Like if, if I hear a song on the radio, I'm probably not just hearing this neutral sound, but I'm also going, oh, this reminds me of seventh grade prom, <laughs> you know, or this, this reminds me of this thing that I experienced before, and I start feeling some feelings around it. I might develop a little story in my head. It might make me remember a person or a place, and that's, that becomes my reality. That's my lived experience. I'm, I'm swimming in a soup of that every single day my thoughts and my feelings. That, that is my perceived reality. That's how I see it, at least. And uh, I think EP does that as well. And uh, then there's a follow-up question after that. My perception of reality is an accurate representation of objective reality. And EP said that he mostly disagreed with this. Not strongly, but mostly. Uh, which, again, I'd, I'd be interested to know why. Why did you answer that? I, I really like that answer. Um, and and I, like, I like all these answers, really, just because it makes me think. And the perception of reality, like objective reality, again, with the example of that song, like my, my perception of reality about remembering that this was my seventh grade prom song that might be objectively real, but that's not something that anybody else is going to be able to just perceive. So my perception, they would just hear the song. So you would say, okay, objective reality is uh, the song with these notes and this rhythm and this chord progression and these lyrics and the, the frequency of sound that we hear. You know, th this is the objective reality of that song. And then there are hundreds of thousands, millions of subjective experiences of that objective reality. That's how I see it. 
So thinking that my perception is going to be an accurate representation of objective reality, no, because it's skewed towards my subjective experience, life experience. So that's the way that I see that. Okay, and then the follow-up statement to that, my perception of reality is an accurate representation of my own personal subjective reality. And E.P. said he mostly agreed with this. And I like that answer too. And, and I like living, leaving that little wiggle room of being like, I'm not going to strongly agree with that because that feels a little bit too much like certainty and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if my perception of reality is an accurate representation of my own personal subjective reality because my subjective reality includes the things in my mind that I'm conscious of and the things that I'm not conscious of. And so, and, and from what I understand of that, about 95% of what I have in my mind, I'm unconscious of. It shows up in the form of prejudice and bias and things that I blame on other people because I don't realize it's really me that is telling the story about how things should or shouldn't be. And so I project my own inner unconscious shadow parts onto other people. And I don't know if my perception of reality, I think that maybe, maybe I'm one of these narcissists who thinks my shit don't stink when actually it's quite stinky. <laughs> so my perception of that reality would not be an accurate representation, maybe even of my own personal subjective reality, definitely not of objective reality. But so my subjective reality, there might be some things that I'm, not, I'm unaware of. So yeah, I, 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 like, I like the way you answered this, EP. Here's a big one, I think, for Existential Dread, this next one. I'm grateful for everything that happens in my life, even the really hard stuff. <sighs> this is a hard one. And I applaud you, EP, for saying that you mostly agree with this. Now, that doesn't mean that you do it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're good at it. <laughs> I'm speaking from personal experience here. I'm not saying I do this all the time, that I'm really good at it even. But I have seen the value of living this way. You know, especially being somebody who's twice divorced and who has lost a couple of jobs in the course of his life. Being able to look back on those experiences and go, you know what? I'm really grateful that that happened because I learned this. Or because I'm not still with that person. Or because of, you know, for whatever reason that I can be grateful. That feels a lot better to me than when I complained and felt like a victim and that things were unfair because I felt like that a lot in my life too. And so being able to, to recognize the difference between those things, especially being grateful for the Mormon church, being grateful for the experiences I had that showed me, you know, I really liked. So I'll tell you, tonight I had an assignment for this class I'm taking. I'm getting a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling and I'm taking a class right now on uh, cultural diversity and the assignment tonight asked me to create a PowerPoint about my culture of origin and what some of my innate biases were that came from that I bet all of you would like to see that PowerPoint wouldn't you I did mention infants on thrones and one of the questions in that assignment was what are you proud of about your culture? And then what are things that you'd like to change? The what are the things that you'd like to change was much easier than the what are you proud of. But I really loved that question. I loved that it forced me to ask, like, are there things that I'm proud of? I, I said I don't like the word proud <laughs> because President Benson said we shouldn't be prideful when I was a teenager. So I've always felt like pride is really bad, right? But... So instead, I reframe the question, because that's what Elder Bednar does. First, let me reframe the question. I reframe the question, what am I grateful for about the Mormon church? And I, the first thing I said was, I'm grateful for the eternal perspective that it gave me. Because whether I believe literally in those stories that I used to focus on, that I would call an eternal, per, uh, eternal perception, what it did for me was it taught me how to step back 
and view everyday things from a larger perspective to see how things fit into a bigger picture. Whether that bigger picture is real or fictitious, it gave me the skill of being able to step back and look at it from that perspective. And I use that all the time now. It's something that's so helpful in coaching when I'm talking with people and they're telling me about the hard things that are going on in their life. But I can see they've told me what it is that they want and I can see how these things fit together. And then I can at least share with them what I see. And it's really powerful. And that's what I'm learning to do uh, with this master's program too. And, and this, that skill was developed in me from the Mormon church. From the way that I lived what I was learning. My subjective reality, my subjective experience with this objective reality that we've all touched and has touched us in certain ways. Some similar, some different. So, yeah, I'm really grateful. And I could go on. I could talk about other things that I'm grateful for about the Mormon church. And some of the really, really hard things in my life. Um, And as far as dealing with existential dread... Uh, boy, that would be, that'd be really hard. I, I think that'd be hard to take something that you're really, truly frightened of and just try to put a happy face on it and say, well, let's look at it from the eternal perspective. <laughs> In the eternal perspective, we're all going to die someday anyway. I mean, you heard me do that a little earlier, didn't you? So that's kind of how I put things in internal perspective. But that might not do it for you. That might not, but I'm still going to get wiped out. (laughs) I still might get sick. I still might lose everything. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know how to tell you to um, enjoy that (laughs) because I don't, I don't enjoy that. And I guess if I'm, if I'm forced to say, how do I, Pollyanna that play the glad game and find the gratitude in it maybe climate change it's made me more aware of my own pollution my own environmental footprint and so I'll recycle where I wouldn't otherwise I'll, I'll try a little bit more I'll, I'll be a little better to the earth I'll care about it more I'll appreciate more times where I just go outside and I stand in there barefoot in the grass and go on okay this is cool I like this I, I'd like to maintain this I'd like to be able to go to beaches I'd like to be able to go to the mountains and enjoy nature um, there's that part of the existential dread of, of uh, losing it is the reasons why you don't want to lose it and spending a lot more time there than in the thoughts of you know what if it's gone or what happens when it gets destroyed okay i i recognize i need to do my part i need to i need to do that why because i love this place and so i'm going to love it for as long as i can the best that i can maybe that'll help with existential dread i don't know but that's how i see things all right the next one the world would be a better place if people expressed more gratitude and less outrage. And EP mostly agreed with that one too. Um, I think I probably strongly agree with this, but again, I don't really know. I don't, and I don't even know what that means. The world would be a better place. What does that mean? Would people be nicer to each other if they expressed more gratitude and less outrage? Would people take advantage of other people less and exploit other people less? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. But I do know that my life, and I gave examples of this earlier, uh, has been better when I felt more gratitude for things than like being pissed off that they happened and angry. Because then I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling pissed off, which it's fine. Do it. Fun. But uh, it, that has its cost. You can only do that for so long. And, you know, we all have different personality types. My personality type, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. I like to have fun. I like to feel good. So, sue me. I'll enjoy it. All right. 
Next one, everything pretty much boils down to two opposing forces, love and fear. And EP was ambivalent on this one. I, I think this might go back a little bit to the way that I can generalize things. Is that what it's called? The eternal perspective, like zooming out, trying to fit things into a bigger picture. That's kind of what this feels like to me, saying um, there's really only love and fear. And really, if I zoom out super far, I think that there's only love and then there's calls for love <laughs> or there's fear that I'm not going to have love. That love's kind of like the, or the you know, fear's kind of the opposite of love in that way. And I, I've really enjoyed playing this game recently of anytime I identify a fear that I have, I try to find what it is that I'm afraid that I'm going to lose because that's probably going to show me something that I love. And again, if I can lean into that love and live in that more than I do in the fear of losing it, I, I feel better and I'm still engaging with reality because it's, it's true. I really do love these things. <laughs> It's true. So, yeah, may, maybe you could maybe you could bring something up that I wouldn't be able to reduce to the category of love or fear. Um, that might be fun to try, uh, but uh, when I do it, I, I I find that something is either love or fear. And even like I said, with the fear, sometimes I just trace it back to love and see it's a, a different part of the same thing. All right, the next statement here. <laughs> Other people frequently annoy me. <laughs> and uh, EP said, yeah, I mostly agree with that. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good indicator of um, existential dread or anxiety or levels of annoyance <laughs> because basically what you're saying is here is, yeah I, I, I feel annoyed more than I don't feel annoyed <laughs> and it's usually from other people or at least I think it's from other people I think it's from other people maybe it's not from other people other people frequently annoy me but there's some judgment there why do they annoy you because you're judging them for something they're doing something that bugs you that annoys you and that's the result of judgment and when you're feeling that annoyance you're not feeling like grateful or happy or joyful or anything like that you're, you're annoyed <laughs> and, and it could be kind of fun to be annoyed sometimes and uh we did a whole podcast many many episodes around being annoyed at things and reveling in our annoyance here on infants on thrones and creating some very fun stuff through our annoyance so i can't be totally anti-annoyance can i got to be grateful for the annoyance but this one's funny. Okay, and then the next question, I frequently annoy other people. I just thought that would be a fun little follow-up. And he said, yeah, I strongly agree with that too. <laughs> and it, isn't it interesting if there really is a correlation between those two things? Uh, that, that if the way that you judge other people is kind of the way that you're also maybe unconsciously judging yourself and you just kind of find yourself, yeah, I'm frequently annoyed. Maybe it's other people, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't like, maybe I just don't like things. All right, the next one. I have grown out of this earth like an apple grows out of an apple tree. He said he mostly disagrees with that. Well, this might be another one of those Obi-Wan Kenobi questions that depends on a certain point of view. Here's the thing that I've always wanted to ask someone like you. What do you think was happening before the Big Bang? Yeah, there's sort of two ways that I like to think about that question. One is it could have been the first event that sparked the expansion of our part of space. But it could be that there's a grander realm of space within which we sit as a small part. And that grander realm may have been there for a far longer period of time. It may have experienced its own Big Bangs, maybe a collection of Big Bangs that may extend infinitely far into the past. However, another answer is that the very question may not make as much sense as the words seem to suggest. It could be that the Big Bang was the place where time itself started. Time itself started. Hello, Professor Dawkins. I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstition. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I, I think it is, yes. 
Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. That's the point. This might be another one of those Obi-Wan Kenobi questions that depends on a certain point of view. Because if you go back to those single-celled organisms, the, the first life on this planet, that, that was before that life broke into the three main kingdoms of life that humans have categorized, created categories for, fungus and plants and uh, animals. But all of them grew out of this earth, right? You know, what, what, what was the first single-celled organisms that lived on Earth? Do you think they came from outer space? Yeah. Maybe they did. I mean, in some ways, or parts of them did. Atoms from the sun uh, combining with carbon in the Earth or, you know, what any kind of electrical spark from lightning that hit the murky water that just had the right amount of minerals and whatever that, boom, all of a sudden lightning and Frankenstein strikes. There's a single-celled living organism on the planet that then just is like, man, I like this feeling. I want more of this. I'm going to make more of me. <laughs> I'm going to multiply and replenish this place. And I'm going to do it, like I'm going to come up against the hostile environment, whatever it is, and I'm going to find a way around it and evolve into different forms of life so that I can have three kingdoms, the animal, the plant, and the fungus. And I'm going to evolve into different species and kingdom and phyla and blah, 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 going back to my biology high school days that I don't totally remember. So, yeah, the way that I think of it, I have grown out of this earth like an apple grows out of an apple tree. But I'm thinking about this from way back. I'm not thinking that like I was born the way that uh, an apple grows on a tree. Yeah, I mean, there's different forms there, but the function is the same thing. And the origin all goes back to Mother Earth and Father Sky and all of the elements and all of the atomic and subatomic energy that came together to make all this stuff. Tonight, I'd like to tell you about one of the big questions in science. What are we made of? What are the fundamental building blocks of nature that you and me and everything else in the universe are constructed from? So we have three particles of which everything we know is made. And it's, it's worth stressing, it, that's kind of astonishing. You know, it's, uh, we sort of take it for granted. We learn this in school, we don't really think about it deeply. Everything we see in the world, all the diversity in the natural world, you, me, everything around us, just the same three particles with slightly different rearrangements repeated over and over and over again. It's a very nice picture. It's a very comforting picture. It's the picture we teach kids at school. It's the uh, picture we even teach our students in undergraduate university. And there's a problem with it. It's a lie. 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 So there is spread everywhere throughout this room something that we call the electron field. Okay? It's like a fluid that fills this room and in fact fills the entire universe. And the ripples of this electron fluid, the ripples of uh, the waves of this fluid, get tied into little bundles of energy by the rules of quantum mechanics. And those bundles of energy are what we call the particle, the electron. All the electrons that are in your body are not fundamental. All the electrons that exist in your body are waves of the same underlying field. Okay? We're all connected to each other. It's like you know, the waves uh, on the ocean all belong to the, the same underlying ocean. Uh, the electrons in your body are the ripples of the same field as the electrons in the same field as the, the electrons same field as the electrons in your body. 
and all of the elements and all of the atomic and subatomic energy that came together to make all this stuff out of what just some like random ignorance <laughs> oh no that's right i think that there's intelligence there don't i so the next question <laughs> each atom in my body is like a mini solar system and he was ambivalent about that as probably you should be because who the hell knows you know like it, it's it's funny because i remember going back to my high school science classes seeing pictures of like a nucleus at the center of an atom and uh, with a proton like the proton and then and the nucleus were like right there right what wasn't it like the neutron is the core of the proton or something like that maybe not i don't remember but i don't remember the electrons were orbiting around the center it's a lie it's a lie it's a lie it was the same thing that they showed me as planets orbiting around a sun so why wouldn't i think of atoms in my body being like a mini solar system you know but as far as you know they're very different in scale right and maybe in function i don't know i don't know but the way that we think of it is that you know the the size of it really makes a big difference but what what if it's kind of like a Horton's Here's the Who thing? I need to go back and read that uh, Dr. Seuss book, even though I know Dr. Seuss has been canceled. That was an interesting story. Horton Here's a Who. Each atom in my body is like a mini solar system. Eh, who knows? That was just kind of like a throwaway fun question. I thought, let's see how people respond to that. The next one, nature is intelligent. See, when I this is kind of the same question that I asked earlier, only the way that I asked it earlier, I was kind of intentionally being vague because I like kind of messing with that. It's kind of fun for me. And on this one, EP strongly agreed. Yes, nature is intelligent. Okay. The next one, the cells in my body have some form of conscious experience of living. And EP's ambivalent on that. And... Again, like, we don't really know. Like, no idea. I don't even know what consciousness is except for a certain type of an awareness. It's, it's awareness that's filtered through the human mind with all of our sensory data coming in and being processed. The way that our conscious mind interacts with our subconscious mind. You know... That's, that's consciousness, awareness. But would you say that of, of a flower, like the photoreceptor cells are aware of the sunlight that hits them and triggers this process of photosynthesis? Isn't, like if, if there was no awareness of those photons hitting the photoreceptors, then that process wouldn't be triggered, right? So awareness could just be like cause and effect, you know, the, the, the way that sound works where these molecules in the air are pushed around by vibrations that are coming out of our, <laughs> well, at least speech, that, that, that we're shaping with our, our throat or our diaphragm or our tongue and our mouth you know we're shaping air molecules that hit an eardrum in a certain pattern isn't that awareness doesn't that mean that my eardrum has to have an awareness there's some kind of consciousness it's not human consciousness but it's some kind of an awareness so cells have a membrane that will open up when there's certain stimulus and they'll close for certain stimulus doesn't that require an awareness of its environment you know, maybe it's something similar to the way that we have little hairs in our ears that pick up vibrations and trigger things, you know, like the little cilia on the outside of a cell membrane. It's the basic same kind of mechanism. Like cells have a digestive tract, right? They bring in nutrients and they push out excrement. Their cells are living things. They're kind of like small versions of what we have with our systems of circulation and you know yada 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 so i think the cells in my body have some form of conscious experience of living 
I, I don't really know what that means. It, it's, it's part of the thing that I categorize as a spiritual unknown that I'm just in awe of. And I, I am grateful for the ability to marvel at it. <laughs> so that's how all these things come together for me. All right, two more. My thoughts and feelings create the environment for the cells in my body. I read a book years ago on, uh, about epigenetics. And it's fascinating because we can be born with a genetic predisposition to have high blood pressure, but those genes may or may not express themselves. So we may or may not actually have high blood pressure, even though our genes say, yeah, you could, you've got this range it could go to, but it needs the right stimulus. It needs the right stimulus. And something, a chemical like cortisol could be that stimulus in, in certain quantities or amounts. So I could, go to, I could go to a movie theater and I could go watch Scream or, or a real scary movie, I don't know. And my brain's watching this on the screen. My mirror neurons are creating empathy for me. I, I feel what this fiction is telling me to feel. I'm having this real experience in my body and my brain goes, all right, release the cortisol. And the genes get that to a certain expression and then boom, all of a sudden I've got high blood pressure and I didn't before. I mean, that sort of stuff happens all the time and we're not even aware of it. We have no idea it's going on. That was crazy to me. You wonder why infants on thrones stop talking about like the Book of Mormon and I, you know like those those things uh, held my interest for a long time and became like these punching bags that I was able to kick against and punch against as I'm asking myself what's real how do I know what's real what's the impact of things that aren't real on the real world what what is the value of fiction are there any values to fiction why is it that there are all these fake beliefs but a really strong group that still continues to believe them that there must be some value and reason to it what is it and those questions became much more interesting to me than just yeah it's not true <laughs> anyway especially when I think about how annoyance might be fun it might be great but that feeling of annoyance is the result of chemicals that are in my body. And those chemicals that are in my body create some kind of an environment that can trigger things in, at the genetic level. And how is that any different? If I'm going to have existential dread over uh, climate change in the outer environment, what about what I'm doing to myself in my inner environment? That... I don't even think of as an environment because I'm so focused on the outward. Why, why wouldn't I be? I always have my eyes open and my ears open. I'm always receiving, receiving things that are outside and how they're being processed inside of me. I don't stop to think about them being processed inside of me. I just, it's like I'm hypnotized by the outside world. So I strongly agree with this statement that my thoughts and feelings create the environment for the cells in my body, and I think I just explained to you why. And then the last question on this mindfulness series, uh, survey, I'm, I am deeply connected to the fabric of reality. So there is spread everywhere throughout this room something that we call the electron field. And EP said ambivalent. And again, these things might, these questions might not be interesting to EP. It might not be interesting to you, but man, I love this stuff. And I've read a lot of books, kind of pretty good schools, not a dodo. <laughs> but from, from what I've come to see, uh, again, going back to the way that life was formed on this planet, whatever the subatomic energy is that creates everything, that's, that's in every cell, that's in every atom, that's inside of me and everything else. Like, I am deeply connected to the fabric of reality. There's times where I think of it as like a single fabric that I'm a little pattern on. 
again, going back to like the eternal perspective, zooming out kind of thing. So, that's what we did tonight. We sat down and went through the mindfulness survey, and I hope you enjoyed it, EP, what you inspired by asking me this question. I don't know what I can say more about replacing religious existential dread for more real existential dread about climate crisis and political and economic unrest and what that means for the future of a young person. Maybe I just added some existential dread about what you're doing to your insides, (laughs) Your, your mind, your psyche too, I don't know. But I appreciate the opportunity to respond and I thank you for listening. It blows my mind that you're interested in things that I've got to say. And, uh, yeah, I say these things at the end of this podcast. Anyone for the closing prayer? Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic. And I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So, if you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob I tune into the scene between the eyes And take a breath Thank you for listening to Infants on Front I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me Never mind the future, never mind what the past be I like to jump and let the universe catch me Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down on some.